Well, there's a famous saying that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. By that definition, Jesus of Nazareth is insane. Really, Jesus? Asked the fisherman. We've been fishing all this time and haven't caught a thing. You really want us to try again? In a different version of the story, Jesus has them cast their net on the other side of the boat, which is just plain silly if you think about it. In Luke's telling, though, he says, put out into the deep water and let your nets down for a catch. Shallow water versus deep water. There's a nice metaphor there, but I'm not going to explore it because I don't think Jesus knew more about fishing than those who earned their living from it. If deep water was a more likely place to find fish, then that's where they were fishing before. So Jesus is asking them to do exactly the same thing they were just doing. But the result this time is very different. Now, the point, of course, is that Jesus' presence makes things happen. When Jesus is at your party, you'll never run out of wine. And when you're fishing, you'll bring in a huge haul. But the fish are a symbol And Jesus says so, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching people. Doesn't have the same ring as the old King James phrase, fishers of men, but it is twice as accurate. Meanwhile, I don't want us to overlook the real drama in this scene. Peter's reaction. When the net full of fish begins to weigh the boat down, Peter falls at Jesus' knees, crying out, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Does this reaction make sense to you? (laughs) It does to me. Peter is genuinely afraid, and I get that. Now, when taken out of context, the recurring biblical phrase, the fear of the Lord, does way more harm than good. But there is a genuine fear here. An awe, a smallness, a terror in the human soul that comes from a more direct experience of the divine. Remember that on Mount Sinai, God has Moses warn the people to stay back lest they touch the mountain and die. Well, today we also hear from the prophet Isaiah who cries out, Woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips, yet my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. The prophet is afraid that this direct view of God's glory will flat out kill him dead. But it's not necessarily God's physical presence that feels so threatening. It has more to do with feeling impure, unworthy. One of the big debates in present-day Christianity is just how much we should lean into our feelings of unworthiness. A lot of adults are working through the trauma inflicted on them by well-meaning Christian parents, most of them, who kept reminding them how sinful they were. These parents neglected the core message that God created us and is absolutely bowled over by how wonderful we are, each and every one of us, no matter what we do in life. 
it's not just a better message for children. It's a better message for all of us. Don't even begin to talk about sin until you understand that God's love is absolutely unconditional. Well, now I'm going to show my age very precisely with this comparison. But who remembers the movie Wayne's World? Maybe some. Okay. There's a scene in which cable access TV hosts Wayne and Garth meet rock star Alice Cooper. They drop to their knees and cry out, we're not worthy. We're not worthy. And Alice Cooper raises them to their feet and says, hey, guys, guys, you're worthy. I think our worship of God is like this. Feeling unworthy or dirty is a well-chronicled human experience for people having a direct encounter with God. And so a seraph, a heavenly being, touches Isaiah's mouth with a hot coal. Here, now you are pure. In the Bible, fire is more often used to purify than to harm. But was this purification necessary for God's sake? Or merely for Isaiah's sake. Hey, Isaiah, hey, you're worthy, okay? Now let's get cracking. In the same way, note Jesus' reaction when Peter falls down in front of him. Listen to his words. Do not be afraid. When you feel like a small, dirty object instead of a beloved child of God, you will be reassured that you are clean and worthy, and then you'll be made useful. Isaiah gets a hot coal to the lips, and then God gives him a specific task to carry out. Jesus tells Peter, with a chuckle, I imagine, come on, get over yourself. I know exactly who and what you are, and there's no time for depressing navel-gazing, so get your ego out of the way. I choose you, and we've got work to do. Now, about that work. Once we've set aside that noisy ego that demands constant checks on our worthiness, we can get to business, but we may find that business to be a different challenge than we were expecting. This is certainly the case with Isaiah. His direct experience of God convinces him to sign up to be a prophet. Now he will have a message to proclaim on God's behalf. But what is that message? Keep listening, but do not comprehend. Keep looking, but do not understand. Basically, God says to Isaiah, go and tell the people that they don't get it and they never will. Well, at this point, if I were Isaiah, I'd be asking some pretty pointed questions of God. Like, for instance, if you're so powerful, why don't you give me both a better message and the ability to prevent this catastrophe in the first place? God's task for us is not the task we ourselves would choose and indeed, Isaiah will not be able to prevent the invasion of his country and the exile of his people. Now, little biblical scholarship, we can tell from context that the book of Isaiah was penned by at least two and probably three different authors. 
The first part of the book from which we heard today takes place before the Babylonian exile and is the only part to mention Isaiah by name. The second part takes place during the exile and the third part happens after the exile is over. Taken as a whole, the book of Isaiah chronicles poetically the journey of the Jews through most of the 6th century BCE. It wrestles with the question of how God could allow such horrible things to happen to God's chosen people. Christians often claim that Isaiah saw Jesus coming from centuries away. And indeed, Jesus knew the book of Isaiah backward and forward, and he said and did many things that fell right in line with what Isaiah preached about. We shouldn't make Isaiah's work all about Jesus, though. Its value is not limited to the long-term prediction of a new sect of Judaism. But within Christian circles, we can look to Isaiah and welcome the theological correlation. Jesus brought the good news that the relationship between God and human beings is in the process of being repaired. And from God's perspective, it's already repaired. All that's left is for us humans to welcome this reality with joy and live into it. That's what Christianity is. Well, this is the best news ever. But what does it look like in reality? Jesus was captured and executed. And the Jesus movement, which had sprung up over, overnight like a miraculous tree, was chopped down in its prime, leaving only a stump. But wait, on the third day, what's growing from that stump? Look, it's still growing today. This is what resurrection looks like, and it's the blueprint of all creation. Do you see Christianity as something that happened once, a moment in history, a static event, facts to learn, formulaic words to intone so you can get something that God might otherwise not want to give you? Or do you see Christianity as something living, something not yet fully formed, a divine promise, a seed of a reality sprouting and growing into something we may not even recognize yet? Which of these Christianities would you rather tell people about? The kind in which it's all about affiliation and appearances and it's every believer for himself and we catch individuals like fish so we can check off their salvation box? Or would you rather tell of a Christianity in which living people get caught up willingly into a community where human beings give ourselves to each other in love, walk with each other in joy and sorrow, probably fail more often than we succeed, never give up on each other, and share this wild idea that somehow God is guiding us all into a fuller, more joyful reality, even in this life and not just in the next one. One famous Episcopalian, the author Madeline Lengel, wrote this. We draw people to Christ, not by loudly discrediting what they believe, by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. 
This is that little bouquet I mentioned last week. This, this gift the church is still offering the world. It's not about us. It includes us. Along with any others who happen upon it and find it irresistible. I don't want anyone to miss out on this. I want to go out and catch people. But more specifically, I want people to get caught. With or without me or my religion, my denomination, my congregation, I want people to get scooped up in the arms of eternal love, caught up in a transformed life of joyful service to others, swept up beyond the worries of every passing day. I'm not nearly as invested in the church succeeding as I am in God succeeding. If those happen to be one and the same thing, and I do believe they are, so be it. But love doesn't need me to be certain of that. Love just needs me to love. The earliest followers of the resurrected Christ called themselves the way. Together with them, we Christians walk the way of love. We usually fail. We sometimes succeed. We let out our nets for a catch when we love with abandon, worrying less about our own success, less about how worthy we are and how we look to others, and remaining concerned instead with whether love is taking root. Will you walk the way of love with me?